The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed their health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. Dr. Dardis Karazian, PhD, is a Harvard Medical School trained and award-winning clinical research scientist, academic professor, and world-renowned functional medical healthcare provider. He develops evidence-based models to treat autoimmune, neurological, and unidentified chronic diseases with non-pharmaceutical applications. His clinical models of evidence-based medicine are used by several academic institutions and thousands of healthcare providers throughout the world. Dr. Karazian is the author of the best-selling book, Why Isn't My Brain Working? And also his first book, Why Do I Still Have Thyroid Symptoms When My Lab Tests Are Normal? Dr. Karazian has a private practice in San Diego, California. He consults with patients from all over the world who are seeking non-pharmaceutical applications. And his practice is focused on developing a personalized medical approach using diet, nutrition, and lifestyle approaches. Most patients are referrals from other healthcare providers who require his unique skills in dissecting the patient's case and implementing personalized strategic approaches. To find out more about Dardis, please visit his website, drknews.com. That's D-R-K-N-E-W-S dot com. Dardis, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. How are you, brother? Very good. Pleasure here, Pete. It is a true honor to have you on the podcast. I've been a huge fan of your work ever since I discovered it. Wow, it must have been nearly a decade ago. And a couple of your books 
have been uh, featured in my bookshelf and my family's and my wife's bookshelf for some time. Why isn't my brain working? And also, why do I still have thyroid problems? Even my, my lab tests <laughs> come back as normal. And I'd love to discuss those two books a little bit later on. But I want to just start off by delving into your area of expertise, which is autoimmunity. And what does that mean for somebody to have an autoimmune disease? So to put it simply, with an autoimmune disease, the immune system, you know, instead of fighting pathogens that come in like bacteria or viruses, it thinks your own body is a pathogen and it starts to attack various tissues. And there's different autoimmune diseases based on which tissue of your body the immune system is attacking. So if it attacks your thyroid, they call it Hashimoto's. But if it attacks your joints, they call that rheumatoid arthritis. But for the most part, it's just the immune system deciding that for some reason, your own tissue needs to be treated like a pathogen and it starts to react against it. Why does that happen? Because it just, I mean, as an outsider, it's just like, what on earth is going on in my own body for it to attack itself? It just doesn't make any sense. So this is a large area of research and study in the field is called immune tolerance. What they've noted is that there's certain immune cells that distinguish your tissue as either being self or non-self. And when this integration of function between different parts of your immune system, there's parts of your immune system called T cells, and there's cells called B cells, and macrophages, and all these other cells. But there are some things that can make them dysfunction in their ability to do their job and to tolerate your own tissue. So that's where the word tolerance comes in. And the field of tolerance is broken down into autoimmune self tissue issues where your immune system can't tolerate your nutrition reacts against it. It's also broken down into food protein tolerance, which is where people develop sensitivities and reactions to food. And then there's something called chemical tolerance. People start to adversely react to chemicals around them. But they're all kind of interrelated. So when a person develops autoimmunity and their tolerance system becomes dysfunctional, they also tend to have more food sensitivities and, and more reactions to chemicals. You know, they start to react against the environment. So that's the field of study called tolerance. And then what they found, to be more specific to your question, they found that for certain people, it's a combination of their genes and environment at the right time frame for a person to then have an autoimmune disease turn on. So it could be, for example, you have a gene type. Like, for, for example, you may have the celiac disease gene type, but it hasn't uh, expressed itself and caused any patterns of dysfunction for you your whole life. And then you get an infection with, let's say, a virus. And then the virus combination with the gene now churns on the disease. So it's a multifactorial mechanism when it comes to autoimmune disease. But probably a controversial question here. And I've had over 100 guests on the podcast over the time. And we talk from everything from nutrition to spirituality to self-love. Is there any correlation? And it might be an interesting way that you answer this, but is there any validity? Just say we have a problem with our thyroid. Would there be any correlation between something about expressing ourselves through communication because that's in the throat compared to something that happens in another part of the body, say in the heart or the liver or wherever it may be, the stomach, which could be an emotional or a spiritual component? And I'm just fascinated by this because some people say yes, some people say no, let's just stick to the basics here, Pete. And yeah. I know you've studied this for so long, so I'm fascinated by it. So it depends on which community you're asking this question in. If you're asking this question in 
immunological circles, they would say, no, it has nothing to do with that. If you ask this, maybe an alternative medicine community, you're going to have practitioners, including myself, that would say, no, when we see people have autoimmune disease, we see lots of, you know, a different patient. We see a patient who has had a significant amount of psychological triggers. We see people that tend to keep things in. And when I talk to my friends that practice traditional oriental medicine, they definitely believe that. They feel like, for example, the liver is related to anger, and then that energy system could be off, and that can maybe cause liver autoimmunity, or you know, grief could be another one for a different organ system. And you know, it's it's interesting because I think if you're looking at any type of disease, it depends on which lenses you look through. So I, I definitely see a connection with emotions and different organ systems based on more of the traditional oriental medicine philosophy because every organ system has its own emotions, right? So mm-hmm. grief is, for example, like we said, lungs and anger is the liver. And there's more of them. I, I don't remember them all, but I think there's some degree of truth to that to some degree. But it's, you know, it's not an area that's been researched. And I wouldn't even know how you would even develop a proper research clinical model to evaluate that. Mm. You know? No, I appreciate you opening up about that because I'm fascinated by all aspects of how we fall out of balance or misalignment in our striving or in our life for long-term sustainable health. Because what is the definition for health for you? Is it that all of our systems are working harmoniously? And what is the definition for disease for you? Wow, that's a good question. Well, I think the definition of health to me is for how optimal your homeostasis mechanisms are. So homeostasis is your body's ability through your physiology to get back to normal. So it could be if your blood sugar drops, how quickly can it come back to normal? If your immune system gets challenged, how quickly can it respond? So I think the more efficient you are with your homeostasis throughout your whole body, whether it's your pulmonary system, your you know your lung system, your gut system, your blood sugar system, your brain, I think that's the best definition of health. It's not necessarily disease-free, but it's just how efficient you are to attaining homeostasis. And the key thing with chronic disease as a clinician for me is I always think, why are they not getting better? Because, you know, when you learn human physiology, everything is designed to fix itself. Your feedback loops and feed-forward systems, you have this balance. So, simply put, chronic disease is the inability to regain homeostasis. As a clinician, you're trying to figure out what those things are. So, I think health for me is related to that. And then disease is an extreme inability to have that system work for you. That's kind of a way many people that do practice functional medicine are looking at. They're trying to look at instead of the disease process, which functions are working. Can they absorb? Can they digest? Can they stabilize their blood sugar level? Can they they have synaptic activity of the brain? Can it fire? And instead of looking at disease or health, they're just looking at individual physiological systems and trying to figure out why it's not working and optimize. I'm going to go down the rabbit hole with you just one more time before we get into the nuts and bolts of it. But there's a lot of work being done out there about biohacking and improving our capacity to live a long-term sustainable life. And some people believe we can live past 100 and still be in robust health. Now, my question to you is, what would that look like? I mean, can we keep improving how we function or is there a limit to homeostasis, like once we're in homeostasis and everything's working perfectly, is there above that? And have you ever encountered anybody that 
is functioning perfectly? And is there such a thing? <laughs> well, I'll try to answer the best I can. I think for sure that, you know, you can't just look at a person's lifespan and the population's lifespan because there's people that are getting older, but they're not functioning. So if you develop early dementia at age 60, you can't function. It doesn't matter if you live to 75. It's not a great life, right? You're always struggling. So we have to look at age with function as well. You know, and I think one of the, the key differences is the health of the brain, to be honest with you, because your ability to experience life, whether it's thinking through something, analyzing something, smelling something, tasting something, looking at a painting and seeing beautiful colors, reflecting on your life, is really all about your brain health and your brain function. And when you look at people as they get older, the ones that have the richest quality of life tend to have the healthiest brains. I mean, the brain is reactive to everything that happens in the body. So if you, for example, have a chronic inflammatory disease or inflammatory bowel disease, we know that that causes significant degeneration inflammation in the brain. So I think the key thing that really makes people highly functional as they get older and to their peak performance isn't necessarily cardiovascular fitness or the bone density or the blood pressure, but how healthy their brains are. And in order to keep your brain healthy, you have to make sure everything else is efficient as possible. I love that answer, actually. So it's about protecting the brain, which is where your book came in for me. And I think my wife actually introduced me to your work. So thanks, Nick. Why isn't my brain working? And what a great title for a book. And first off, how did you come up with that title? And did you um and ah about a different title <laughs> first? With an autobiography. No, I'm just joking. No, actually, what happened was I first wrote the book on my thyroid. Most common question I had in practice with patients was, why do I still have all these thyroid symptoms? I don't understand it. My lab's normal. So it was just a recurring question that came into my practice. When I wrote my thyroid book, I figured, oh, that'd be a good title. And then that book became very successful more than I ever thought it would be. And then when I came to writing a second book, I know I needed to really let the community know a lot of this great information about brain and what they can do to it because there wasn't much out there on it. And it just happened to follow the theme of the brain book, asking the question. So why isn't my brain working? Looking back, you know, many people don't want to read a book in public that says, why isn't my brain working? Or why isn't my heart working? Because <laughs> it's already letting people know you have something wrong with you. But that's kind of how the title came. Uh, I love it. I want to talk about immunity and about viruses because you've been sharing some wonderful information through your social media recently about that. But before we get into that, I want to start with the nuts and bolts about I've been promoting a paleo or ancestral approach for many years, cycling in and out of ketosis. So we have low carb, then higher carb days, whatever it may be, and removing the inflammatory foods, whatever they may be for each and every individual. So that my first question is, what are the most common inflammatory foods? And what does that mean? Because I have people that say, hey, Pete, I've tried following what you were talking about, removing dairy or grains. And at the moment I'm having, I've just cut down to one coffee a week with a little bit of milk in there. So I'm 80, 20 or 90, 10 or whatever percentage they make up. So let's talk about what are the inflammatory foods? If they do cause inflammation, is there such thing as having them in moderation or does that just kickstart the immune response or inflammation again in our bodies? Right. Well, I think, first of all, I would say that 
just from before we use the terms paleo diet and ketosis, which is only used for seizures. This is maybe over 20 years ago in practice. When I saw patients really sick, when I saw patients suffering from autoimmune disease and they would come in, they would bring in their own food and they would be afraid to eat out. It was pretty much what they call autoimmune paleo diet. It was basically vegetables and meat. They just knew physiologically themselves. They didn't need to follow a trendy diet. They knew they could not tolerate grains. They knew they could not tolerate milk. And the most common proteins that cause food reactions are definitely modern wheat, gluten, casein, which is the protein from milk, albumin, especially egg albumin, the protein from eggs. And then we're seeing a, we're seeing a trend with soy and corn. And part of the theories behind that is that it may be when these different pesticides, the pesticides bind to the protein and change the protein to make it more reactive. It's also the theory with wheat. So I think those are the most reactive foods. And, you know, for me, when I first heard the term paleo diet, I'm like, what's that? I'm like, oh, that's a diet every single one of my autoimmune patients is on. And then the concept of ketosis is also, I think, very important. And ketosis has tremendous benefits from reducing brain inflammation, causing what's called autophagy, where your cells regenerate. And that's how we just normally function. So I think if you just didn't understand anything about trendy diets and stayed off the internet, and you just walked into a chronically a practice with chronically sick patients, and you just saw what they needed to do to function at their peak, it would pretty much be a paleo diet. <laughs> For them, it wasn't about calories or weight loss. It was that they needed to get their antigen mode off, and they would have a chance to have the immune system function and recover when they were fasting a little bit. So, and that's what we're seeing which is very fascinating with more and more research as these diets become more popular, more researchers are investigating them. And I think that for the most part, when you're constantly exposed to inflammatory foods, there's a price to pay. And for example, we talked about the brain, how important it is to maintain your brain health. Pretty much anything that causes inflammation anywhere in your body will have an end result in the brain. So inflammation in Anywhere in your body, for example, your gut from eating exposed foods or inflammation from air pollution that activates your pulmonary, your lung immune system, they all actually trigger a release of cytokines that then turn on cells in the brain called microglia and it causes brain inflammation. So going back to your first question, like healthy aging and how do you maintain your you know, vitality and everything as you get older has to do with your brain health. So when you're constantly eating these inflamed food, inflammatory foods, it can cause a problem. Now, food is very, it's an important part of every culture. There's social connections with it. And when you see people that are really sick, it doesn't matter. They'll just do whatever they can to function better. But when you see people that aren't really sick, they're just kind of tired, they don't feel well, or metabolism is slow, it's really hard for them to sometimes understand how important those things are because it's such a big emotional change for them. There's patients I've had where I've said, you know, your lab show you have these reactions to these foods. We see this reaction. We see commonly, for example, gluten, dairy, or very inflammatory for autoimmune disease. And you need to go off these foods. And some will do it and some won't. And some, you know, we say, when you feel sicker, you will make the decision. I don't think you're sick enough yet. And sure enough, they do. Ideal scenario is to really reduce your overall inflammation to maintain your your physiology, your immune system, your brain health as much as possible. Mm. I had the pleasure of sitting with Dr. Alessio Fasano once upon a time. Mm. Actually, he was over for a meal when he was traveling through Australia. And if ever you come through Australia, Dardis, I'd love to cook you a meal. And yeah. he was at the Bioceuticals Symposium with a friend of mine called David Perlmutter. And Alessio was saying that 
going back to my question, he said that, you know, one bite of, say, gluten, for instance, if that was your inflammatory food, could have a, an effect up to six months, possibly even longer. Have you found that in your research? And because I mentioned that to people and they look at me like I'm, I've got two heads, like, what do you mean one bite of something or one glass of dairy can affect me for six months? You're crazy, Evans. No, so there's a, there's asked for celiac disease, the answer is potentially that's possible. And there's some evidence of that. But celiac disease is, and the definition of celiac disease that is being used right now, which is also changing as the, the look at diagnostic criteria. But if you have what's called a genotype called HLA-DQ2 or HLA-DQ8, if you have those genotypes, what happens is there's an exaggerated, significantly different response with cells in the body called T-cells when they get exposed to gluten. And it's not the same for people that don't have the same genetic genotype. So some people could have gluten sensitivity. So if someone has actual celiac disease and they have the gene types of what's the criteria is calling celiac disease, yeah, you can have an immune inflammatory reaction for several months from one bite. For people that have gluten sensitivity, it's not going to necessarily be like that. It's not going to be as significant. It's still bad. There's still going to be inflammation, but it may not be four, six entire months from one bite. So as far as literature is concerned, there's a completely different reaction to gluten for those that have this specific genotype versus not based on how their T cells and their gastrointestinal tract respond. So I think the answer is yes and no, hmm. depending on what you're looking at. I think the answer for yes and no <laughs> covers a lot of ground these days too. Asano is a brilliant uh, researcher who focused mostly on, on zonulin and celiac disease. And we're all grateful for his research. But I think uh, he was in reference to celiac disease when he made that statement. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about testing then. How do you test what could be problematic or what is problematic for somebody? Is there a standard test that is through the whole medical fraternity that I can walk off the street and go to my local doctor and say, I need to be tested for all of these things? Because I know there's over the years, there's allergy prick tests, there's different food sensitivity tests that may or may not work. So tell me about the gold standard that is currently available and where can people get accurate results without wasting their money and work with somebody that actually knows what they're talking about? Yeah, so I think that's a good question. There's, there's going to be some biases and some issues. Let me explain the big picture, okay? So first of all, there's something called food allergy and something called food sensitivity in the field of immunology. And food allergy is an immediate immune response to a food. And that can cause something called anaphylaxis. We go into a shock system and your windpipe closes up and that is very serious. And that's a food allergy or an allergy to bees or whatever, but it's an allergy. It's not a food sensitivity. And allergies have a specific immune response where there's an antibody that's called immunoglobulin E, I-G-E, E is an elephant, that is causing that. And then there's what's called food sensitivity, which is a delayed response to foods, and it never causes anaphylaxis. It just causes subtle inflammation throughout the body. And the reaction with food sensitivities require different immunoglobulins or antibodies, and they are immunoglobulins A, immunoglobulins G, M, and those all are ways you test them. So you can get a blood test to measure immunoglobulin E for allergies for any food. You can do the same thing with G, M, or A. Now, that's the science behind it. That's how it's measured in the world of immunology. And 
So the best way to measure that is through a methodology called ELISA, which is enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay. And that is testing method where they basically take these lab wells, there's these uh, dishes, they have a little gum attached to them, they take the pure protein of the food, they attach to the gum, and then they take the patient's blood and then stick it next to the protein attached to them and see if there's a reaction and then measure the change with different equipment called an optical density measurement machine. They can see if the person's making high amounts of antibodies to it. So whether it's IgE, IgGem, IgA, if it's a blood test, that's one way they do it. Now, as far as the laboratory technology goes, there is something else called cell-mediated testing, where people do a pinprick and then they send it in, or they don't measure antibodies, they measure cell size swelling. And cell-mediated testing has absolutely no evidence for it, but lots of marketing for it. And cell-mediated testing is like, it's in, in the U.S., for example, where I live, it's not even allowed in many states. <laughs> they can't uh, validate the tests with repeat testing. So you definitely want to make sure the labs are doing the testing or doing ELISA, which is the gold standard. And the gold standard in medical laboratory testing requires very uh, stringent testing for what they call sensitivity and specificity and reproducibility. So when something becomes a gold standard, it's not something to even debate. There's a rigid standard of going through those validations and specificity, sensitivity, and reproducibility to become a gold standard. So ELISA is the only gold standard. So if you're going to spend the money and time and energy to measure food reactions, if it's not ELISA testing, you're literally wasting your money. The second part of this is what kind of testing you get depends on who you go see. If you go see a traditional allergist, many of them do not care about food sensitivity. They believe everyone has subtle inflammation. They believe everyone has some reactions to different food proteins. If it's a sensitivity, they're only concerned about allergy. So you may go in and they may only do an allergy test for you, which is IgE, or they may do what's a skin test, which is also an IgE response when they put different proteins on your skin and see if you get redness or swelling. So for us, in a model where we're looking at chronic inflammation from foods, food sensitivities absolutely matter. And we have to measure reactions to foods with an ELISA methodology blood test for IgG, IgM, IgA. And that's how you know from a laboratory perspective. Now, to add to that, even with food sensitivity testing, there's some, it's not a 100% specific and sensitive test. And you may have a reaction, for example, to corn with IgG antibodies, but not with IgM. And you ran a test that only measured IgM. Or you may only have an IgA reaction, but you measured IgG. So unless you measure IgG, IgM, IgA, there's a possibility you could miss it. And actually, one of the best ways to find food sensitivity is just to eliminate the food for a period of time and reintroduce it, the classical elimination provocation diet. So you can do labs and you can do elimination propagation sites. The combination of both really seems to be the best way to figure out what foods your person's reacting to. Fantastic. Can I ask a, a really blanket question here, which is what foods in your experience would be, and I don't want to use the word safe because maybe that's not the right word, but which seem to be the least or non-inflammatory across the board for pretty much everybody. Is there such a thing? Because I've heard people having great results by just having meat and seafood in their diet, but does that help the microbiome? And then I've heard that there's certain plants, you know, that we thought were really good for us, such as spinach, but they contain oxalates, which can cause issues in us. So what are the, I guess, the fail-safe ones or the ones that in your experience, if you eat this predominantly, you're going to be cool. I, I can answer that for you because I've actually asked the same question myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And not just private practice. I work with commercial laboratory. We do data analysis and publish papers on it so I can have access to a large database of several thousand people that get their test results done and I can get a clue of what's going on. So here's what I can tell you that I've seen from our analysis, okay? We see the least amount of reactions with animal protein just across the board, okay? So it's very rare to see someone react to beef, chicken, and but it does happen. I'm just saying it's the least common. The most common for sure are grains and milk. Grains, milk, egg, corn, rice are definitely on the top. The least reactive ones are fruits and vegetables. However, within the vegetable species or vegetable group, we do see a significant degree of reaction in those to people that to lectins. Lectins are glycoproteins in vegetables that have like seeds in them. So it's like tomatoes, eggplant, or fruits called nightshades. Uh, nuts and seeds are all part of the lectin family and so are nightshades. We see a lot of reaction, especially with people that have chronic diseases and inflammation autoimmunity. So when we see people that are really, really inflamed, we typically get them off grains and milk, especially if we don't have testing or testing is difficult. And we pretty much put them on a, I guess, an autoimmune paleo diet. Mm -hmm. And we're very careful to see if they have reactions to lectins. So we may also have them remove lectin vegetables from their diet. And the other key thing is your immune system, what you call immune tolerance, what we talked about, where people develop autoimmune disease or not, or food sensitivities or not, their tolerance to food proteins. A large part of research has shown that it has to do with how diverse your microbiome is. So we really want to encourage getting diversity in their microbiome by having them eat a diverse list of vegetables. I, I love that. I want to ask about mushrooms, but before we get to mushrooms, you mentioned animal protein. You didn't mention fat from animals. Is there a reason behind that? First of all, an immune response that causes an inflammatory reaction from an antibody can only happen with a protein. So it can't happen against fat itself or it can't happen against sugar. Now, you can have fat bind to protein. You can have a lipoprotein and you can have sugar bind to protein, which is a glycoprotein. But actual fat itself, there's no antibody reaction to it. And just like there's no antibody reaction to glucose or fructose. So it has to bind to a protein or be part of a protein complex to have an antibody response. So now you could have fat that has absorbed a lot of toxic chemicals that you eat and the toxic chemicals cause free radicals that causes inflammation, but it's not from an antibody response. And those fats such as processed vegetable oils, is that what you're talking about? That could be... It could be livestock that's in a toxic environment because <laughs> one of the things about that is that there's only, you know, it's an energy source to our calories. It's a place where you store toxic. Uh, compounds. Which I guess is why pasture-raised or animals that have been raised outdoors in the sun with fresh water and natural food, and when I mean natural, I mean really natural, seems to be the best choice if we can source that. Yeah, if we can. And it's getting harder and harder. Mm -hmm. So I live, practice, and work in California. And in California, we had a law passed a few years ago. It was called Proposition 65. And they passed the law where they said, no nutritional supplement can contain any toxic particles. And before the law was, you can only have toxic amounts of compounds. Like there's always some a level of aluminum, for example, in the soil, right? Or some amount of, of lead in the soil. It's a very small amount. Before the law was, a nutritional supplement can have the same amount of toxic chemicals that's found in nature. But they passed this law in California a few years ago, and a lot of manufacturers left California because they couldn't follow those guidelines. Mm, interesting. 
And I was consulting with with an insurance company that did not want to move. So they had to figure out how do they source chemicals without having any trace levels at all. And what they found was they couldn't find an uncontaminated source of rice anywhere in the world. And rice was a big problem. And it wasn't necessarily the exposure, but the plant compound itself. So rice takes up a lot of water, also takes up a lot of toxic chemicals. They found that certain plants, like botanicals, sometimes the herb plant compound will take up the chemicals in the root. And as a manufacturer, they have to use a leaf extract. Sometimes they would take it up in the leaf and they have to use a root extract. So different types of plants take up diff chemicals differently. So it may not just be the environment, but the plant itself, and then the certain toxins in the environment. So I know like it would be impossible to manufacture any supplement in California that has any rice protein in it because it would never pass the laws anymore. So a lot of manufacturers just removed it from their products. Mm, it's interesting. Many years ago, I visited uh, Seattle actually with a friend of ours. Uh, my wife and I went there and had Cyrex lab tests done on ourselves. And interestingly enough, rice seemed to be my biggest, apart from gluten and dairy or the casein, was that uh, rice was showing up that to be quite inflammatory for me. And it was, it's so fascinating because it was my favorite food that I ate pretty much every day before I found a paleo. It was sushi for lunch every day. And then at nighttime, it was a beautiful curry or a stir fry with rice. And it was amazing how much rice I could eat and how much I was addicted to it. I was super easy giving up dairy and giving up bread or or anything with wheat in it. But rice for me was like, oh, shit. (laughs) <laughs> and, and so many people say it's the most benign of the grains. But for me, I had a, I, I'm not sure what you think of Cyrex lab test, but for me, it seemed to be a very problematic. Cyrex is, I think, the best technology lab in the world. And uh, I actually work with them, so I'm a big fan of theirs. Now, I would say what's interesting, though, is, and this is what I got, this is where my PhD came from. My PhD, my thesis was we were looking at how chemicals bind to proteins. And then the chemicals, when they bind to the protein, change the structure of the protein. And the structural protein changes from the chemical bound to it, which is what happens. The protein now becomes a foreign compound to the immune system. The immune system reacts. So I did that with fire retardants causing neurological autoimmune disease. That was my PhD thesis. But this is a process in the immunology field called haptination. Haptination means you take a benign protein, let's say it's rice protein, but that rice protein now binds to lead, which is actually the most common chemical that's found in rice. And when lead binds to rice protein, the rice protein structural, structurally changes and becomes a new antigen. So now it becomes much more reactive. So it's, it's possible that some of the reactions people are having more to, like before, when there was maybe less pollution and, and less activity, um, rice protein very benign. But now we have rice combined with different chemicals. And that could be why it's more reactive than before. This is why maybe why people can't just go gluten-free, they have to go grain-free sometimes. Now, there's been some correlation research done with glyphosates and, and gluten and the rise of celiac disease by researchers at MIT. And they found that when they look at the exposure to gluten to using glyphosates and the rise of celiac disease, there's just a very strong degree of correlation, statistically significant correlation there. So it's a theory, but it goes into the concept of haptination. Haptination means you have a benign protein, but something binds to that protein and now it becomes antigenic or inflammatory. So I think that's happening with a lot of grades. Rice is definitely one of them. My family and I have been using beautiful, high-quality essential oils for the last 20 years to live healthily every single day. Now, if you're passionate about health and are ready to step into leadership, 
I want to invite you to partner with my team and I to build a beautifully successful doTERRA business. Register at PeteHLC.com backslash Pete. That's PeteHLC, which stands for the Healthy Living Collective, dot com backslash Pete. Talk to us about cross-reactivity as well, because that seems to be something that a lot of people are not aware of. And if you can simplify that for us, that would be wonderful. So if you react against something, if your immune system makes an antibody against something, then that antibody binds to the antigen. So for example, if you have an antibody to gluten, because you're gluten sensitive, so when you eat gluten, your immune system goes, that's something I need to react against. And the way it reacts against it is you have cells in the body, immune cells in the body called B cells, and they make this antibody for it. What the antibody does is it attaches to that protein, and the antibody doesn't actually destroy anything. The antibody attaches to that protein, and then that tells the soldiers of the immune system called natural killer cells and T cells to go and destroy that protein. And then that causes a significant inflammatory reaction. So if you don't have gluten sensitivity, you eat gluten, you don't have a rise in antibodies, and you don't get an inflammatory reaction. However, if you are sensitive to gluten, you eat it, your immune system makes antibodies for it, and that's how you measure it to see if you're sensitive to it, then those antibodies bind to all that gluten that you just consume, and then your immune system has to destroy it because antibodies attached to protein means that it's foreign, it's an invader, and it's destroyed. And the way they destroy it is by creating a lot of inflammation. So that's the normal process. Now, what cross-reactivity is, is what they found is if someone has an antibody, let's say to gluten, and they are making these gluten antibodies, normally the antibodies would bind to gluten, but there are other proteins that are very similar to gluten that then causes those antibodies to also attach to. And they could be other food proteins, which grains are part of it. Grains are very similar to gluten. So sometimes when people eat rice, they're getting antibody reactions with like gluten antibodies, very similar to rice, getting those responses, or they can bind to their own tissues. So one of the most known reactions to gluten is something called gluten ataxia. It's a cross-reactive disease where people that are making high amounts of gluten, those antibodies bind to an area of the brain called the cerebellum. So all of a sudden, a person eats gluten, they have gluten antibodies, those gluten antibodies bind to the gluten proteins, but those circulating gluten antibodies can also bind to proteins in the brain, in the area of the brain called the cerebellum, and then the immune system not only destroys gluten, but also destroys the brain. So that's cross-reactivity. And there's lots of different food proteins that have cross-reactivity with our bodies and tissues. I've done a lot of research and publications on that with various diseases, including thyroid and MS and diabetes, but it's pretty interesting. I don't like visualizing the picture of <laughs> attacking our brains, that's for sure. It sounds horrible. Yeah, as a matter of fact, just add to that, the research they found with gluten sensitivity is that two-thirds of people that actually have gluten sensitivity don't have any gastrointestinal symptoms, but they have antibodies to the cerebellum and they have cerebellum autoimmunity. And their exposure to gluten actually causes more brain degeneration than ever intestinal disease. Mm. A word that I want to talk to you about is accumulation in relation to disease. Because obviously we don't just develop a disease overnight, or sometimes we do. How does it work, and how long does this process take? In specific to which disease, because it's different for each disease. Autoimmune disease. Yeah, explain it to me. So autoimmune disease is, without question, a multifactorial response. There is some gene susceptibility, and genes combine with lifestyle factors. So let me make it more simple. There's something called the genotype, which is your genes you're born with, right? We all have a set of genes we got from each parent, and we have those genes. 
And then the genotype is your potential to have disease or not have disease over your lifespan. But then your genes interact and respond to the environment. And your genes respond to your chemical exposures, your pathogens you get exposed to, your overall lifestyle, your stress responses, all those things change the expression of your genes. And your genes plus the environmental factors is called a phenotype. So we all have certain genes we're born with, but who we are, how we're functioning at is our phenotype, our genes plus these, these different factors. So when you look at diseases, certain genes can be triggered immediately with certain exposures. So it could be an infection. Some autoimmune diseases that are very linked to an infection. So someone has a gene for Epstein, uh, I'm sorry, someone has a gene for lupus and they found an Epstein-Barr infection can immediately turn that gene on overnight and now they have lupus. So that's one model. Another model of, so let's say, turning on lupus, which is a very ugly autoimmune disease, is that it doesn't have to be Epstein-Barr, but a combination of multiple factors and change the expression of these genes or an accumulation model of different variables, different factors that then cause the onset of the disease. So some people with a lupus don't never had Epstein-Barr. So I think it's a combination of a multifactorial approach. And when you look at accumulation, you can look at accumulation from a different windows. You can look at accumulation from a toxicology window and you get small amounts of toxic exposure over time that causes a response, which is part of the variables that turns on autoimmune disease, or it's a combination of things. But it's definitely different for each person. Mm. Have you done any work regarding, say, electromagnetic frequencies and what the result of that is on our bodies as a lifestyle factor, has anything changed over the years that you're seeing? Is there any correlation or causation regarding different Wi-Fi's, different technologies that are being released? I don't want to go down a conspiracy route here, but I'm just from a purely scientific. Can any of these, like, do you sleep with a phone next to your bed or do you turn your Wi-Fi router off or do you even have Wi-Fi in your house? And what do you explain to your patients about this or is it out of your scope? Well, okay, let me share with you what I know about it. So for me, I was initially an EMF skeptic. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not sure. This is kind of far-fetched. This is more dangerous. And I mean, I knew there was some truth for some people because I would see in my practice, I would see patients that were extremely sensitive to it. I know they were, it was real. It wasn't a big thing, you know, but I wasn't really sure. And then when I did my postdoc, I was at work at Harvard Medical School. I was working with Transcend Laboratory and my mentor was a phenomenal researcher, Martha Herbert. Martha Herbert is a pediatric neurologist, uh, MD, uh, PhD neuroscientist. Mm, I've interviewed her, actually. She's, she's wonderful. <laughs> she wrote this fantastic book years ago through Harvard Medical Press called The Autism Revolution. And she was doing a lot of research with EMG studies with like a brain activity of children that have autism and learning disabilities. When she was acting as my mentor and I was learning from her how to do proper research and going through that whole experience she was sharing with me all her data and she's a scientist she doesn't have a full you know she just looks at the data she's not biased one way or the other right a very well-trained scientist and she would see that her electromagnetic emg studies on her children would be off the charts when there was emfs around the building and they would profoundly disrupt their brain function <laughs> And she published some research in that studies. And, that. and then when I saw some of the data, I'm like, wow, I really believe that this is having a real effect that I just could not believe before. I didn't understand how it was working. Now, we do know that there is some research with EMFs impacting the brain and, and uh, some risk for certain brain tumors have been out there. What we definitely see is that when neurons 
start to degenerate or neurons get injured. Neurons have something called a resting membrane potential of some degree of electrical activity they have at a certain rate. And then this resting membrane potential has to reach something called threshold to activate a neuron response or a firing of the neuron. When people get brain injuries or neurodegeneration, the distance between the resting memory potential action, which will cause a neuron to fire, can be really close together. And EMFs have a potential to trigger that because they activate an electrical response. So in my practice, what I've seen is people that have significant brain injury or neurodegeneration are very sensitive to EMFs. As a matter of fact, it's gone to the point where if I do see EMF sensitivity, I will immediately do a very thorough neurological exam and look for past brain injury or start looking at antibodies for the brain and see if they have any neurological autoimmunity. And I would say there is some definite uh, um, connections there with that. Mm, thanks for sharing. So a couple of things I want to talk to you about, Chris, quickly. I know we've been having a great conversation, but in relation to a virus at the moment, COVID-19 or coronavirus, what are the solutions if there is a solution and how does it impact the work that you do and what are you sharing about this at the moment? Is there a path forwards, whether we are exposed to it? Is there any way to prevent it? Talk to us about this, please. Well, I would just say I'm not a virologist. My PhD is in health science with concentrations in immunology and specific to autoimmunity and toxicology. So I'll give you what I understand. But I have had, you know, lots of training in immunology and virology and so forth. First of all, it's a new virus to the human species, right? So as a new virus, no one has any immunity to it. Every other virus people know about, it's been around for a while. And every now and then we get Ebola or SARS, which is a virus that jumps from animals to humans. And whenever there's a new virus to the human species, there's going to be people that get the infection. And this COVID-19 is a virus that does some significant damage to the upper respiratory system. And certain people cannot handle that trigger will definitely have some adverse reactions to it. But at the end of the day, there's going to be immunity developed. And once the immunity develops to it, then the virus is not going to be this global threat in this pandemic anymore. So, you know, the best so-called vaccination to it is to get the infection. And as you get the infection, and as a, as a worldwide population gets the infection, to make antibodies to it. And then they no longer are threatened by it as long as there isn't a significant mutation of the virus. So, for example, we don't know what's going to happen to COVID-19. COVID-19 could... Uh, you know, they go through different seasons. In the next season, all viruses mutate over time. So if it's a highly mutating virus, then it's going to be different each season. And it could be something like we deal with, like the common flu, influenza. So the key thing with influenza virus is that it mutates so rapidly and so quickly that it changes from year to year. So that's why it's an always an issue for all of us. To, do we get the flu this year or not? Because it's one of those viruses. Now, COVID-19 may do that. COVID-19 may become a highly mutating virus that's going to change its structure. So it'll always be an ongoing issue for us as we deal with it. But even in that case, when people develop immunity, there's going to be some people that have responded to the other strain. For that season, they're not going to get the infection. And it's not going to be to the levels of concern that we have today because right now, you know, everyone's developing immunity to it. But also, one of the key things that's that's being done right now is they're looking at testing COVID-19 to see who has the infection. And the type of testing they're doing right now is called a polymerase chain reaction test, which is a PCR test. And that is the gold standard test to see if someone actually has an active infection. And that's what they're measuring to see if people are dealing with the virus. But there's another test 
which is the antibody test. And if you have the antibodies to it, especially IgG, then that means you've developed immunity to it. We have started looking at these antibodies, and if you have the antibodies to it, then technically you're not going to get the infection again unless that strain. And even if it mutates, you may have such similarity with the mutation that it may not bother you in the future. And when they've done, like they've tested antibodies in every person in Iceland right now. So it's, it's an interesting study. And they found about a third of the population has antibodies to it, have immunity to it from exposure, but they have no symptoms. And they're saying with some of this data now that maybe somewhere between 25 to 50% of the populations, when they measure antibodies, have antibodies to the virus and they don't have any symptoms. So as more and more people in the world develop antibodies to it, the virus becomes less threatening. Mm. So what's happening here in Australia, and I guess in America at the moment too, we have social distancing, so we can't interact with anybody. So, and I understand one side of that, but then listening to you, it's like, well, if we want to go back to the systems that we had in place, such as going to work, going to school, creating income, whatever it may be, going about our business, the quicker we can uh, hang out with each other to a degree, the better it'll be, but potentially there'll be more sick people catching it and developing a response to it. Some, as you said, will develop a horrendous response to it and others will not even potentially know that they've had a response to it. Right. So social distancing is really just designed for us to not overwhelm the healthcare system, right? But it's going to delay us getting back to normal because you actually want people to be exposed and develop antibodies. So as a human population, this virus doesn't threaten us to the degree it has. Now, they're hoping they can develop a vaccine in time. You know, there's some, some skepticism of vaccines and so forth and toxic pollutants and chemicals and adverse reactions. But from an immunological perspective, if they actually find a close enough pathogen antibody response to a vaccine, it will work. I mean, there's no question about that. It's just a question that they, some communities have about toxic chemicals and adverse reactions. And, but whether the vaccine causes adverse reactions to people or not, if they do find a proper vaccine that causes antibody production in the body, then the world will be immune much faster. I'm not saying it would be the right approach for some people, but it, especially for that risk, and they do find a risk factor for it. But it's just a matter of time. So it's the social distancing is going to make it longer for us to develop immunity to it more as a pop, as a human species. And then if it does mutate again, and we're still social distancing, we're sort of stuck in this uh, Groundhog Day to a degree. I think the goal is to, from what I understand from public health policy in that field, the goal is just to have enough ventilators and have enough staff to respond mm -hmm. to vaccine. And then eventually, you know, like, for example, they're trying to see the flatten the curve. But once they remove restrictions, they're going to see a huge spike. They're expecting another spike. There are going to be three or four spikes of this, of this virus, even when social distancing stops, because it's a normal nature of the disease. They're just trying to have enough ventilators and medical equipment and buy time doing it. Mm. But in an ideal scenario, we would all be interacting and all getting the infectious disease and, it would, and then we'd be through it much quicker, but there's some people that would die and that's a major concern and ethical concern for all of us. And also there's issues with if the hospital system gets it's burdened, then if you cut your finger, you may not have help or if some emergency happens to your family member, they may not be able to serve your healthcare needs. So it's a serious concern for everyone. It's not just for the immune compromised people. Mm, I hear you. So what are some solutions or advice that you've got for people currently uh, going about their life? Is it following a 
I don't want an autoimmune or anti-inflammatory diet, number one. I've seen you post and talk about activating or stimulating our vagus nerve. And I'd love for you to be able to explain what that does and how that may play a part in strengthening us, if that's the right terminology. And also, I saw that crying can also be something that isn't something we should be ashamed about. <laughs> if you could explain a few of those for us, please. Sure. I did make a series of videos and put it into a program we call the Immune Resilience Program. And it's free at drkinews.com, which is my website. So it's just, if you click on to anyone who's interested, click on to it. It's just called the Immune Resilience Program, and you can download it for free. I'm not trying to sell anything to anyone. It's just a free program. Because I was getting so many questions about what do I do, and I was trying to explain it just from well-known mechanisms of diet lifestyle, and I can share those with you right now. But the key thing is, first of all, you have to sleep. That is the number one thing. If you are, especially social isolating, there's no reason in the world you should be getting the best sleep of your life right now. And sleep has the most profound impact on dealing with viruses and pathogens. And I can tell you with lots of clinical experience working with patients with things like chronic hepatitis C or acute Epstein-Barr or different types of viral infections like Salmonella virus, unless they were sleeping, we had no chance of getting them to recover. So sleep is like the single most important thing, I would say, first of all. The second thing is just to make sure you're hydrated. Um, I know a lot of people, like I tell a lot of friends right now, they're all turning to alcoholics and social distancing. <laughs> you know, they're depressed, they're drinking wine, they're drinking lots of alcohol. Mm-hmm. It's diuretic, you're not getting enough water. So a lot of them are just getting dehydrated. So you got to make sure you're drinking lots of water. Can I ask a question there? Because sure. I've copped a lot of flack in this country for promoting the cleanest water possible for hydration and saying fluoride may not be a great thing to be putting into our bodies. From your point of view, fluoride or no fluoride? Or is it a yes and a no type answer? I'm not for fluoride person. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So we've got <laughs> hydration, clean water, no fluoride. <laughs> uh, hydration is key thing. I mean, and hydration really just allows your immune system to have a healthy circulation, blood flow, your blood doesn't get thick, it allows you to activate biochemical processes, hydration is critical, sleep is critical. So you have to have physical movement to maintain your immune system. Your immune system does not work well in a sedentary state. So any kind of activity or movement, even if it's a brisk walk, some kind of some basic exercise, something, that gets your heart rate up and gets your blood flow going, that'll cause your immune system to have proteins and cells communicate in the lymphatic system and get your circulation going. That's critical to have healthy immune function. So that's a big part of it. Mm, I love jumping on the trampoline or the rebounder seems to be a really good one for social isolation that people and the kids can do, which is fun. That would be a great way to do it. It doesn't have to be our exact work. It just needs to get your heart rate up. We'll have a profound impact on the immune system. And then uh, so jumping on trampoline would be great. Another key thing would be to really just make sure that, you know, you have healthy relationships. And, you know, when they look at animal studies and they're trying to shut down the immune system or cause depression, they socially isolate the animals and put them in a solitary confinement area and the immune system goes down and then the brain activity goes down into a depressed state. And that's how they then do research on animals for those types of mechanisms, which is terrifying. You have to worry about animal rights and these things, but that's the world of animal research. So that's kind of what's happening now. We're isolating ourselves, you know, 
into a small mm-hmm. area. It's going to have an impact on your immune system. It's going to have an impact on our well-being. But it's really important to you know communicate with friends and family, and also from looking at people's faces is another part of the immune response. So you actually, when you see people you like, you just see the faces of people you like. You get a neuroendocrine immune response and an opioid response than you would not get just from speaking on the phone. So different parts of the limbic system of the brain get activated when you actually see a person's face and communicate with nonverbal cues. So, you know, we do have, you know, things like FaceTime and teleconferences and those things to, to keep things open. So, for example, I have a 13-year-old daughter. You know, we encourage her every day to connect with friends and FaceTime with them and do some video chats. And we really make sure that it's not just by phone, you know, even though it might be easier. But we see her immune system change, her health change, her, not immune system, but I mean, her overall sense of well-being, her, she glows after she's speaking with some friends. Those are for your, your healthy immune system, especially if you're alone and don't have family members with you, you know? So those are like the fundamental aspects of making sure your immune system is healthy. If you're like alone and you're socially distancing and you're depressed, and you're dehydrated all day and you're sedentary, you're eating inflammatory foods all day, and you're staying up night watching TV and not getting the best sleep, you are just completely sabotaging your immune system. Which, by the way, a lot of people enjoy. They're just in that depressed mode, right? And the, the social isolating thing. So you definitely want to avoid all those things. Those are the things we talk about the immune resilience. You know, those are the highlights of the immune resilience. And we're going to talk about the vagus nerve and also crying. I've recently had some breathwork ceremonies that I did a few months ago mm-hmm. and also plant medicine ceremonies. And in those processes, I cried. And the first breathwork ceremony I ever did, I cried for a good 20 or 30 minutes and not just once, like many times. Yeah. Okay. Well, the vagus nerve first, and I first started talking about the vagus nerve in my brain book. When we're talking about people that had brain gut issues, the vagus nerve complex, the vagal complex, and they're called nucleus ambiguous in the brainstem. When they get activated, they're what actually causes your intestines to work. So your vagus nerve, your vagus nuclei has branches called the vagus nerve. The vagus, vagus in Latin means wandering nerve. It's a group of nerves that wander from your brainstem all throughout your gut. And they activate your gut muscles to contract and move, but they also cause changes in your autonomics, which allows you to have blood flow into your gut, produce digestive enzymes, and have basic function in gut. So we would see people that have traumatic brain injuries or brain and neurodegenerative changes in their gut function would go down dramatically. We would have patients activate the vagus to get their gut function to work by doing things that stimulate the vagus, like gargling. So we'd have patients gargle. I would have patients gargle with water. I'd have patients give themselves a gag reflexes on their tongue or just sing very loudly. And those things have a vagal response. So that was, that was very specific to the gut. But in your question related to the immune system, we know that when you actually have too much sympathetic activity, which is the fight or flight response, the stress response, you actually do create an inflammatory response. And you also have some immune suppressing effects from that. So there's an actual field of study where they look at how the sympathetic system triggers inflammation in the body and they call it neurogenic inflammation, that activating the sympathetic nervous system causes inflammation in the body. So it doesn't have to be food, it doesn't have to be chemical, it just has to be your fight or flight response activated. And the only way to counteract the fight or flight response is to get your vagus response to work. So whether you do deep breathing or you do meditation, those things have a tremendous impact on the vagus nerve and the vagus autonomic response to come to activate what are called parasympathetics, and then they shut down the sympathetic response. 
So you were doing meditation and deep breathing. So that I mean, those are all parasympathetic activities. And especially if you're in a sympathetic mode, maybe you're stuck in social isolation with uh, your kids and driving you crazy or your spouse that's driving you crazy and, you know, blood pressure's going up. Doing any kind of activities like you're doing can really mm-hmm. simulate the parasympathetic to have an impact on the immune system. So I think that's where the vagus comes in. And then the second part of your question was, so crying is, is, you know, one of the things socially we're trying to do is to not cry and to suppress crying. Crying is seen as a bad thing. So if you see, you see your kids crying, you know, you immediately want to figure out why and stop it. But crying actually is a physiological mechanism where you release opioids. When your body's under a tremendous amount of stress, the only way you can function and, and respond to it and not totally fall apart is you have to have your system produce opioids. And what opioids do is they block inflammation and they support your immune system and they keep you functioning at a time of extreme stress. So you really want people, your kids, if your parents, to cry it out. And crying it out has phenomenal immune-enhancing properties in the body. Now, one of the things that I also talk about in the Immune Resilience Program is really laughing and crying. Both laughing and crying have major impact on the immune function. So mm-hmm. if you can watch a good movie that makes you laugh and cry, that's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we've been doing that. I've been watching the uh, Adam Sandler <laughs> films, The Waterboy and Blame It on the Zohan or Don't Mess with the Zohan or whatever it is. One last question, if you don't mind me asking, again, that's... Um, I really appreciate your time so far, Dardison, and your wisdom. But I've just spent the last year and a half uh, investigating the role of cannabis on our health. And I understand that from certain aspects that, say you have an autoimmune disease, that certain seeds may not be helpful or they can cause an inflammatory response in our guts or in our brains. So where does hemp seeds come into play with this? Can it cause inflammation? Because I know there's a a huge movement that people love to eat hemp seeds or hemp protein or hemp powders. And who would that affect if it does affect anybody? And why are some people with autoimmune disease, they're juicing cannabis or they're eating raw cannabis in a smoothie, for instance, or however they're ingesting it. And it seems to be helping them in certain ways. Is it placebo or is there something going on there? So is it inflammatory? Can it work or is it all in the mind? The answer is maybe for all of them, but let me explain. So it depends on what you're looking at. So if you, let's say you're looking at hemp, okay? So there's hemp protein. And then if you're looking at, you know, hemp in relation to marijuana, for example, right? The component called THC and you have cannabinoids. And if a person is reacting to hemp seed, they probably have hemp seed protein antibodies that they're just reacting to the protein portion of hemp. And that does happen. People do have hemp seed sensitivity. And people that react to lectins and other foods and have lost their immune tolerance, many of them will react to hemp and have reactions with hemp, whether it's a health benefit or not. But that's the protein of the actual plant. Now, when you look at the chemical components of THC and the cannabinoids, the THC is the part of the the marijuana that gets people stoned. And then cannabinoid concentrations are where the medicinal benefits come in. And cannabinoids bind to different receptors throughout our body, in our brain and in our immune system. And they have a very profound supportive effect. So cannabinoids really help uh, regulate inflammation. Cannabinoids impact natural killer cells. Cannabinoids bind to cells in the brain called uh, microglia. They modulate brain inflammation. 
they are trying to, in the medicinal world, uh, using marijuana, for example, they are trying to find the highest concentration of different cannabinoid and really investigating different uh, different versions of cannabinoids because there's different cannabinoid receptors in the body. Some strains of cannabinoids from different plants have attached some different receptors on on cells in the body for different people. So there's going to be some degree of diversity there just with the cannabinoids. So I think what I've seen, and then THC obviously has, you know, the so-called getting stoned effect, but for some people, it also activates the parasympathetic and it calms them down. And that really has some health benefits for them as well, especially, you know, for some people that have, you know, issues, but there's always, you know, but again, you can get people that use it as a cushion and they don't focus on their health enough and that could be its own problem. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I think there's much more benefits further reaching the cannabinoids and isolating different streams of cannabinoids and figuring out which cannabis are different receptors. I mean, it's, 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 it's going to be a major breakthrough. It already is. Mm. So recently, I've a girl that I interviewed, she has Crohn's disease and has had yeah. part of her intestine taken out and she's juicing cannabis yeah. when we filmed her. And she has, she said it has basically saved her life. And what she said was she's taking a lot of cannabinoids because in the juicing form, you're putting all of that into, say, a shot glass, and she drinks a shot glass once or twice a day. And she said it's so far the best thing, best medicine that she's had, and she's tried everything. So how does that work? Because Crohn's is autoimmune disease, I believe. Yeah, so Crohn's is autoimmune disease. It target proteins in the intestine where it destroys the gut. And what cannabinoids do is they, they, the main impact they have on autoimmune disease. And by the way, the story you just share I hear every day in my practice. Not everyone responds to them, but some people, if they do respond to cannabinoids, it is life-changing for them. But the cannabinoids bind to activate cells in the immune system called regulatory T-cells. And these regulatory T-cells basically calm down the autoimmune response. And it, is, it has a tremendous benefit for many people with chronic autoimmune disease, for sure. Interesting. Okay. One last one because I'm fascinated by this now and it's got me thinking. Mushrooms. Yeah. Very rarely do I hear people, I mean, there are mushroom experts and I've had them on the podcast before, yeah. but where do mushrooms fall into an immune response or autoimmune issue? Are they good or are they bad or are they, is it a yes and a no? Well, I'm not a mushroom expert, but I can tell you from the most commonly used mushrooms, like mitaki mushrooms, for example, and beta-glucan components of mushrooms that people use, they seem to have a very clear and direct, what they call it, TH1 response in the system. So TH1 response is uh, a response where your T cells get really activated. And they seem to have a tremendous benefit in general for enhancing your immune function to fight an infection in your immune response, right? But this is like concentrated amounts of the actual key immune-enhancing properties. So this is why some people supplement with them with the extract. And, you know, they're not just eating like a mushroom with their salad. <laughs> yeah. But I think that for the most part, some autoimmune diseases, when they activate the TH1 system, it calms it down. So some autoimmune diseases have a overactive, what they call the THD system. It's just the expression of the immune system. And when they actually take TH1 stimulators, like components in mushrooms, they have their autoimmune come down. But there are groups of people that when they take it, they do have flare-ups. Hmm. Interesting. You can't classify it by the disease. It's actually by the individual. It can go either way. Gotcha. Last one, if you don't mind. Sure. If somebody's thyroid has been obliterated, I think is the word, and I think I interviewed Dr. Amy Myers about this once, can it be regrown? And I've heard that taking, say, a thyroid supplement from, say, 
an organic grass-fed, grass-fedish cow actually eating the thyroid of that in a supplement form with nothing else can be beneficial for some people because it stops the autoimmune response attacks that instead of the thyroid continually. So is there any truth in that or is it hogwash? Okay, well, let me kind of dissect. First of all, thyroid costs, thyroid is a thing in the tissue and new cells are going to regenerate to grow. Okay. And then within the thyroid gland, there are, like when you look at autoimmunity for the thyroid, the target protein is the enzyme called TPO and another component of thyroid hormones called thyroglobulin. But it's actually the thyrocyte or the follicular cell that's involved with making thyroid hormones. So when there's inflammation against the enzyme TPO or thyroglobulin, the surrounding thyrocytes get destroyed. And if enough of them get destroyed over time, the person can't make their own thyroid hormones. The way they look at that is they measure something called TSH. And if the thyroid isn't working, the pituitary tries to stimulate it. And that's where their body releases TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone. So if a person's thyroid is totally, as you say, obliterated and it's not working, then TSH levels would be up because of the brain, the pituitary is trying to get it to work. So high TSH means the thyroid's not working. Now, the TSH levels fluctuate. And there is no good studies that says one of two things. First of all, taking something is going to enhance the growth in a human that's going to have any impact on autoimmune disease. That's kind of out there. Well, it's possible. Just haven't had any evidence shown it is. Mm-hmm. When people have autoimmune disease, I think there's some degree of desperation. And maybe there is something that does help promote activation growth of follicular cells. But, you know, it depends on where you stand. If you're, if you're looking, just looking for hope as a patient, maybe you're attracted to that. If you're looking at it as a researcher, you're going to be absolutely skeptical of that because there's no evidence yet. So it depends on, I guess, who you're interviewing with, they say, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone has their own bias, their own education, their own experiences, their own philosophy, you know, where they are in their life. So I think with that question, if you ask a researcher, they're going to say that's crazy. Okay. Mm. Now, great. But again, it's not that they've disproven it; they haven't proven it. So you have to also be open-minded as a researcher and go, "Well, let's that'd be a great study to investigate. Let's investigate that." The other key issues where you're asking were decoy model of antibodies, where a person takes a thyroid glandular and the immune system attacks the glandular of the animal, not the human part. That is crazy. That's like from 1920s. Mm-hmm. I can just tell you, it's in my whole PhD work in knowledge was autoimmune disease and antibodies. You're not going to take a glandular and have your system attack the glandular and not your own thyroid. It does not work that like that way. Mm-hmm. That's just, I don't know, 1920s glandular theory model. <laughs> it's not how the system works. Awesome. No, I just wanted to clear that up. Last question. What are you most excited about in the field of medicine at the moment and, and where it's headed? or presently, what's, what's the most compelling thing that you are super excited about? Well, I'm really excited. I think for me, the whole field of what's now being called personalized medicine, because you know before it was kind of like alternative and conventional, and it was just like they were fighting each other. And for me, I live, I practice in the world of preventive alternative medicine, and I do research in a research model. So I like to look at things from both sides. And when you look at personalized medicine, when you look at general medicine, they, they do these large clinical trials and they try to do something that's called generalizability. They try to make a drug that is used by anyone, everyone in the large population. And they'll do the study design and do the statistical methodology so that they can look for one change like blood pressure or you know CRP levels or something over a period of time, or six to eight weeks and take the changes so they can get the FDA approval for a drug, let's say, and that's a typical model. And 
there's now a major shift in academic circles and research circles that, you know, chronic diseases is not about generalizability, but chronic disease is about personalized, individualized medicine. And the research models that are being used for generalizability may not be appropriate for a personalized model. And a personalized model has many factors and many variables, and those require their own research model. It's like they call it one research testing and so forth. So that's one of the big things that I see is going to change healthcare when we start to distinguish not between alternative versus preventative, but really start looking at personalized medicine versus generalizable medicine. Because allopathic medicine and pharmacology, for the most part, has been built out of a research model that's for generalizability and not personalized. So as a person who's interested in research and evidence-based medicine, that's what's really got me most excited. I love it. Well, we're all unique and we're all wondrous and we all have our own stories and our beliefs and our, our biases, so to speak. So, I mean, that makes so much sense. And uh, I'm so happy that you're one of the leaders in this new way of thinking about medicine and health. And I just want to tell you that I love you, brother. I really appreciate all that you've shared for us today. And I'm wishing you and your family the best on this unpredictable journey that we have <laughs> we have at the moment but i see light at the end of the tunnel always oh there's always for sure there's light thank you pete and uh, it was a pleasure being with you and you know if you, absolutely 100 the world will develop immunity to coronavirus and it's not going to be what it is today thank you brother We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co. established 1977 have personal and domestic water filters, which turns your ordinary tap water into great tasting alkaline ionized mineral water, which removes up to 99.9% .9 of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals and bacteria. So you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Watersco was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. The information views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.